All right, so introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Leo Plekhanov, PsyD. Um, I'm working on a project of looking at how psilocybe cubensis, which is a species of magic mushroom, how it influences my depression. All right, and uh, so for everybody out there, this is basically our, our, is this our third take? Uh, yes. Yes. So we, we, we tried recording this a few times before, but my little uh, recording device crashed. So this probably isn't going to seem as spontaneous as the previous efforts, but we're going to try to keep it fresh and interesting, basically talking about your experience with psychedelic mushrooms, right? Yes. It's like a less uh, academic way to phrase it. Yeah. And um, j just, you know, for the purposes of full disclosure, I know you personally. So um, for people who are wondering, like, uh, how, how do these people know each other? Well, there it is. I've known him since since elementary school. And uh, what other disclosure is there? Oh, yes. Or a sort of statement that I can make. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything he's going to say, although I don't necessarily disagree with it either. That's sort of a general kind of statement. So I, I guess go ahead and relate your experiences. Okay. So um, I started taking magic mushrooms on April 6th, and uh, my significant other purchased the grow supplies for me, the grow bags and the spores, on a whim. Um, she just saw them for sale and bought them and gave them to me, uh, not really knowing my interest of with magic mushrooms. But I, I've been interested in them for a long time. Um, I was a little afraid of them until recently. The D.A.R.E. program scared me from elementary school. <laughs> yeah. So it worked as intended and took me until about until I got into my 30s to consider uh, magic mushrooms and marijuana because I use them both in concert to treat my depression with great effect. Um, my depression used to be, so this is if I'm not on SSRIs, or in psychotherapy treatment. This is just me unmedicated. So what is SSRIs? Not everyone's uh, gonna know what those oh, are. Yeah. In fact, I barely know what they are. They're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, uh, they make the serotonin in your system stay out. So it's so the serotonin interacts more with neurotransmitters as opposed to going back into this reuptake storage. I guess it's kind of a simplified way of putting it. It's just antidepressants. So I took yeah. um, a generic version of Zol Zoloft uh, citrulline. Uh, but I, it didn't really help my depression that much. So if I'm unmedicated, my depression, according to the Beck depression inventory is in the 30s, which is quite severe. Yeah. Uh, symptoms would be like crying spells, uh, preoccupation with death, um, general malaise, uh, reduced concentration, just an overall reduced function functioning. So when I had SSRIs, my depression would be in the like 16 to 22 range, which is uh, mild to moderate depression. So a good decrease, but still not gone. And then with magic mushrooms, my depression's in around nine, which is subclinical. So 
that would be normal ups and downs of life, no sign of depression. Yeah. So the treatments have been really successful. Yeah, and I, I do want to emphasize that as far as the people I know, you're one of the, you're not one of the ones that I would have characterized as like a hippie, as somebody who would regularly try something like magic mushrooms. And in fact, I myself don't do that kind of stuff or, you know, like, I, I can't say I've never tried marijuana or um, edible marijuana, but I certainly don't do it regularly or anything like that. So we're not like a drug den over here, I guess, is how I might say it. <laughs> right? Yeah, I was... It wasn't until the pandemic that I even considered marijuana because the D.A.R.E. program made me think of it as something that just kind of like alcohol, something that's yeah. a depressant and kind of makes people less functional for a few hours. And um, it wasn't until the pandemic where I started watching a lot of these free online trainings on uh, medical marijuana use. And then I started to look at the utility and I tried it myself originally for sleep. And it helps a lot. And uh, for a long time, it was my respite from depression. There'd be this segment of the evening where I could almost be guaranteed not to be depressed. Yeah. Because uh, I would only and, use marijuana after 5 p.m. because it makes me too unproductive to use any earlier than that. And of course, people who are strictly anti-marijuana, they tend to be paranoid about it themselves. Like they uh, make it seem like it's going to be the end of the world. Yet marijuana is mostly legalized in the state of Michigan. And I can't say the entire state has fallen apart, you know? Yeah. Um, like someone pointed out to me that um, someone I knew that worked at a head shop said that he knows a lot of construction workers and about 90% of the construction workers he knows use marijuana regularly, but are still able to perform their job. Yeah. Uh, so it creates impairment, but there is also definitely a responsible use for it. And, and of course, you know, there in Michigan now, there are plenty of marijuana shops around, so there's definitely a demand for it. We know that. Yeah. So what about your ex experience with, uh, you know, um, the magic mushrooms? What else can you say about that? Oh, so the first time I did it, it felt like I could massage my whole body through my foot. Like I would touch a part of my foot and like feel muscle relief in the back of my neck. It was a very strange experience. Um, I always kind of believed in reflexology as having like, good applications and relief, but I never actually felt it other parts of my body. Um, so that was very strange. Well, it is true that, you know, all so many different parts of our bodies are connected through nerves. Like if, if I touch, if I touch part of my scalp, I might even be able to feel it in my arm or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I never had that before. Um, yeah but I did kind of believe in it. Like I thought it was possible or it made sense that nerves would connect everything. Uh, and the second trip I had of strong delirium where I would dance in my kitchen for a few hours, maybe like two or three hours. I, I'm not sure if it was that long because my sense of time is not 
cohesive. Um, but I would dance in my kitchen and close my eyes, and it felt like I was in a whole different room. Yeah, uh, that looked actually kind of like Yoda's hut in Star Wars, and there were these <laughs> there were these bizarre creatures that looked like a cross between a mouse and a fox, and wow. they were they were speaking in like a weird, low, buzzing, vibrating sound that kind of reminded me of jazz with like a a few random hisses. So like, and it it was really cool. <laughs> and I, I touched them, and I felt like electricity go up my arm. It was strange, and it was... Um, so for the purpose of the study, I decided to interpret that as dreamlike. So dream analysis, it's the contents of my consciousness. Um, yeah. So the hallucinations are coming from me. They're not elsewhere where other people can experience them. So that's how I want to interpret them as just exploring the interior of my mind. So as we discussed in our previous takes, attempting to record this episode, my experience or one of my experiences actually trying marijuana was with an edible. And I, I actually seem to only get the negative stereotypical um, side effects of it. Like I didn't really have control over, over my body so much. I didn't, uh, you know, like I would, I would say something and I'd be like, did I actually say that? You know, and I, I was kind of like almost in a sleep state, I suppose, in a way. Hmm. But I also think that might have, I might have, have, have had some concussion symptoms at the time because I'd bang my head at work on like a, a shelf or something when I was changing the trash bags. <laughs> So what are your thoughts on that, like the negative experiences? I once spoke to a bud tender. Um, I told her about, there was a time where I had an edible from a bag, and it was a good experience. And the next day I had the same number of edibles. It was two from a bag. But I got extremely high, and I felt like I was spinning, and then I threw up. And I asked the bud tender about it, and she said that, um, what helps her if she's having a bad experience from THC is to take a CBD extract, and that seems to balance it out. Even if it's counterintuitive, it kind of balances the other side of the high. Uh, I haven't tried that, but that always seemed like like a worthwhile plan if if the effects are too strong. Yeah. Well, I I guess some um, you know part of part of why I why I might have had that strong reaction too is because I don't do it regularly. You know, that's probably another factor. Uh, also, if I was to get like really drunk, I would obviously have some problems because I don't drink alcohol. So I think that was another reason. So did, did you have more of a harsh reaction during like some of your first experiences or, or was it just fine? It was usually really good. Um, yeah. So my, my first time taking an edible, I felt euphoric. Like I didn't, it wasn't really on my radar that marijuana created euphoria. It just, I guess it hadn't occurred to me or maybe I heard about it, but for whatever reason didn't put it together that I would feel euphoric. And it was amazing to have this euphoria at night. Whereas like nighttime depressive symptoms tend to increase. It was complete relief from that. And then I slept very well. Um, yeah, the, so, so the bulk of my experiences are amazing with marijuana. 
Yeah. Well, I'm, I also mean like your other experiences with the oh, mushrooms. Sure. I have at, at this point I've tripped four times and I haven't had a bad trip yet. They've all been really good. Um, they all kind of start out the same. So normally I'll eat a breakfast and then wait a, three hours because I want my stomach empty. Yeah. And then I'll eat mushrooms and I'll wait about a half hour to hit the bong. I, I prefer the bong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's just my preferred technique. And um, so there's so are, nausea. Are you worried about, I don't know about addiction, but becoming too dependent on this? Uh, the mushrooms, I don't think that's a problem because I take them once every two weeks. Okay. So I think that that, that spacing is long enough that there really wouldn't be a chance to develop dependence. Yeah. Uh, marijuana, I'm not quite a daily user, but I'm pretty close. So my usual use of marijuana is um after 5 p.m sometime i'll segment a four to six hour span where i'll use marijuana and that kind of keeps my tolerance relatively stable yeah um, and then i frequently take two day breaks so two consecutive days uh, i actually might do two days um today and tomorrow uh, where i just don't use marijuana and it's usually okay um yeah this pattern seems to prevent problems with dependence. And uh, what has this experience like changed any aspect of, I don't know, you, maybe worldview would be too uh, significant of a term, but um, just the way that you, uh, well, I guess, sure, why not just say worldview? Has it changed your worldview at all? I think so. So in my second trip, um, this might have been my biggest dose of psilocybin, although I don't know for sure. Uh, I'm only dose, I'm dosing based on weight, which, um, relative age of the mushroom can yeah. influence how much psilocybin's in it. So younger mushrooms might have more than older mushrooms, for instance. But anyway, uh, in my second trip, I would close my eyes. And it would feel like millions of years went by, like I had these lifetime experiences, um, which looking back, I view them more dreamlike, but they're very real and vivid in the moment. And so it felt like millions of years went by and it seemed like I had reached this end of time thing where mm. nothing existed anymore. And I call it Nirvana. Um, Although oblivion might be a better term. I think oblivion makes more sense to me, but nirvana also makes sense because there's a cessation of desire. There's nothing to want or need or really even think about. It's kind of this blissful non-existence, this extinguishing. Hmm. And I didn't know I was Buddhist, I guess is kind of my response. Or maybe, I'd, maybe I'm still incredulous to being Buddhist, but it seemed like I experienced nirvana yeah. But I don't know if I would call that oblivion or something else or just some trance state. Well, I, I've been in manic states before, you know, w without taking any sort of substance. Well, I guess I shouldn't say without taking substances because even food and drink is a substance. But I think you know what I mean. Yeah. So how does this compare to like sort of a regular manic state? Do you think? 
Yeah, I'm not sure if I've ever been fully manic, um, but I've worked with a lot of manic clients, so I've seen mania, and mania seems to have this, uh, like often there's a grandiosity to it, yeah. Or with a lot of catastrophizing, or there's a lot of general cognitive distortions that come with manic states. Um, people are pretty far removed from reality. And I could see the overlap of being far removed from reality here, but I would call this more of a delirium. Yeah. So manic states, one of the characteristics of mania is high, high levels of energy. And I have an elevated level of energy, as evidenced by my dancing, because I dance yeah. for hours. On mushrooms which i wouldn't do, normally do that um so there i think there might be manic elements but i th i think it's presented more in a delirium as opposed to anything else i think if someone else watched me they would see someone that's having a really hard time responding to external reality just yeah. doing their own thing well you know in the times where i've been like sort of on in a manic phase it's almost I don't know that there have been a few times where where kind of didn't have full control and you know that was without taking any sort of you know uh drugs or whatever so i'm wondering you know what 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 your thoughts are on that oh control um it didn't feel like i lost control per se although i could see like like my compulsion to dance could be an element of losing control but um activities like going to the bathroom or getting food were pretty easy still i would yeah. it would be hard because it was it's hard to see on mushrooms like stuff oh, is and, kind and of moving and I, crystalline I hate to interrupt you but for the people oh, yeah. out there i i also wouldn't normally imagine you as somebody who dances too easily you're not yeah, really the I, dancing type <laughs> yeah it takes it usually takes some kind of illicit substance to get me to dance yeah um so I, I guess i could see like someone looking at this behavior being so unusual as being a manic episode um but there's something decidedly delirious about it too yeah it's it's different yeah and and i i, I also want to mention like as as far as i'm concerned you know so, some people mistake me for being a straight edge guy because i don't regularly use substances but that's more that's almost more like a political movement or something like that it's almost too purist yeah. whereas in my case i just don't don't do stuff you know on a frequent basis or whatever and i would also say that you know even if you do something like drink a mountain dew or something that's also altering your body in some way you know, or, or just regular activities, you know, you get an endorphin rush. Basically, everything we do has to do with chemical reactions. You learn that if you've taken a chemistry class or, you know, studied the physical sciences, right? Yeah. Yeah, endorphins can have some addictive qualities, even if it's not addiction in the usual sense, because you're not taking a foreign substance and putting it in your body but people who are who run a lot and get like a runner's high definitely yeah. sit and get some sense of withdrawal when they don't have that yeah i was actually just just gonna ask you about that because you know that endorphin rush is what what some people call it yeah 
And I think that's why people like skydiving or taking, you know, uh, or making risky decisions or engaging in thrill-seeking behavior. Yeah, it seems like it. I can remember being on roller coasters and feeling this profound relief from depression because it really makes me feel lively and and yeah. maybe awake or maybe maybe there's something with increasing the mind-body connection that helps alleviate depression because it really tunes me into my body. Well, I think you're also just forced to look at reality from a different perspective if you're on a roller coaster or I guess even if you're not going on a roller coaster, just if you're in a, if you're in a different environment and having special experiences, it can seem more positive than, you know, the humdrum existence that so many of us know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, is there anything else you would like to mention here? Like about your studies or... Yeah, um, I noticed a weird effect last night after I tripped. Um, I wrote about it. Uh, maybe I, I could read this excerpt. It's a brief excerpt. Okay. When I was in my kitchen, I had the thought, I'm so glad to have all of this, referring to my pantry. Spontaneous gratitude seems to be an important part of the mushroom delirium. The delirium is the freedom to dissolve and see everything as new and amazing. Peanut butter is no longer a routine or a chore of existence. It's bizarre and cool. How is it that anhedonia so often tries to take this from me? Anhedonia is like the aggressive boredom of depression. It's when nothing seems pleasurable. Yeah. Um, what was I? Oh, is the zest of life fleeting? In Taoism, the Tao is the indefinable experience. Is the zest of the moment something like that? Psilocybe cubensis certainly seems to make things zesty. Zesty yeah, I, and full of life. Yeah, so I think there's the way it changes the perspective, the way it makes everything seem so new and bizarre. I think that really does alleviate depression and it does bring about a sense of gratitude that um, peanut butter, you know, it's just kind of a routine, boring thing that I normally have, but now it's suddenly new again as though I'd never had it. Oh, yeah, there's, I would imagine there's a sense of wonder. Yeah. And you know that that's that's some something that a lot of people try to have. So they go out into nature and they go on these hikes and things like that because they want to feel exhilaration from just being around nature and beautiful scenery. Yeah, um, that's a good point because people like life can be a little too rote and boring after a while. So doing something novel really changes that. And I wonder if mushrooms just make everything seem novel and new. And I think part of it too is not to sound too anti-people, but I think getting away from people can really help sometimes in terms of alleviating depression or because you're in some ways removing potential bad experiences or reminders of bad experiences. Yeah, there's something with a performance side to being around people where we're performing yeah. in a social setting as opposed to just being ourselves. And when you're alone, you can really be yourself. That's true, yeah. I had this weird experience yesterday on mushrooms where I don't... 
So I don't know if this description would fit how I would have described it at the time. So keep that in mind. But it felt like I was pretending that I was a spider trying to take over my own body. Because <laughs> my body felt weird. It felt like I had extra appendages, like legs that didn't really fit in my body. But it was kind of fun and weird to be a spider moving in a human body. It was very strange. Um, and I could see that being terrifying to people, but it also felt very playful and liberating to have the freedom. Because <laughs> when do I get to pretend to be a spider taking over my own body? That's like something a 12-year-old me would do. Yeah. Uh, well, so you know, when, when I was a kid, I would, uh, you know, me and my, not that this is exactly the same, but it kind of reminds me of it. But, you know, just we'd put like the names of superheroes in a hat and we'd pick them out and we'd, we'd be those superheroes and fight each other. It's, you know, what you just said sounds like something I, you know, we would have done as kids for sure. Yeah. So I, th I think being alone and on mushrooms does give one the freedom to play. Yeah. And the enthusiasm to play. Cause I can be alone and not on mushrooms, but just too anhedonic to even bother to try to play with anything. Yeah. So, um, is there anything else you would like to uh, mention about, like, I don't know, uh, playful experiences, I suppose? Yeah. Um, so a part of this research um, is inspired by Hunter S. Thompson. Because uh, there's this, he had this gonzo journalism, and I wanted to see if I could have a gonzo science and something that's not a romanticized homage to Thompson, but something that kind of recognizes the recklessness and that it is the experience and it generates the experience. So I wanted to move beyond that. And when I, I recently rewatched Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and there's a lot of, between the two actors, that seems playful, like they're playing as opposed to being in the adult role of whatever it is they do. Well, of course, they do put themselves in in the dangerous situations. Yeah, but they're very playful and glib about it the whole time. Yeah. Well, they're not terrified, I should say. Well, really, part of the joke of that movie is that there's there's practically nothing that happens, and they have no enemies or no conflict other than with themselves and each other. Yeah. Like, even, even the... Uh, the DEA types or the cops don't really give them any problems. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't really get that joke part of it, which is if you actually stop and think about it, it's actually potentially hilarious. Yeah, it is that. Like Literally nobody, of... not even the anti-drug people are actually, you know, giving them problems of significance. Yeah, so it's kind of like they're really diving in the freedom to explore these altered states. Yeah. And it's funny, though. Like, the whole thing's funny. Like, we can't stop here. This is backcountry. You know, it's a really yeah. <laughs> bizarre experience that um, kind of makes more sense if you've been there. Yeah. Well, I think uh, my, my ex's dad, because we were watching that movie, and he happened to be there, and he 
he said he couldn't watch it anymore because he he understood it too well. <laughs> it was too realistic for him. Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. Um, because it's a uh, like I've seen bizarre things while tripping, but I think my attitude is so euphoric. Maybe that could be from the marijuana too, that it's yeah. prompted me to be euphoric and more playful, but there's something about it that makes the bizarre experiences really fun and interesting. Yeah. Whereas I could see, like if I described them, like I, I felt like I was a spider trying to take over my own body. That could sound really terrifying to other people. Or oh, yeah. I close my eyes and I see these jazz speaking fox alien critters you know that could be really off-putting too oh yeah well so many different things that you could describe could be uh terrifying to people and you know as, as somebody who's a lover of horror movies i, I kind of have to deal with that all the time you know the uh the ways in which people have negative reactions to scary things i guess you could say or potentially scary things. Yeah. But of course, one of the uh, one of the liberating aspects of horror movies, or you know, the sensation of horror in general, is that if you see it on a screen or or uh, read it in a book, you you kind of get more brave when it comes to facing it in real life. Oh yeah, that there's that exposure that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to so bring that's up why like, there's a that's why there's a link, I think, between horror and comedy so often. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because horror and comedy kind of combine together often, like in Ash versus Evil Dead or something. Yeah. And uh, if you see a horror movie, it kind of disempowers, you know, the the evils that we face, and presumably the evils within ourselves as well. Yeah. Or I should say it potentially does that, you know, if, if we're using it correctly. Yeah, if we're not like if we're not too traumatized by it, like the the exposure to our own cortisol in smaller controlled doses kind of helps us have more mastery over those states of being. Yeah. Well the uh I, I think I think the main thing is to just try to develop a philosophy. That helps you to cope with life. And you know yeah. that well, it's it's not too different from, you know, like um well let's see how it should have well, like how you have a way of sort of routining your uh your your intake that you told me about earlier. If you've got oh, sort of a yeah. general plan and a basic philosoph philosophical approach to it. I think it makes it more uh, more of a safe experience. Yeah, and I was I did write a section about um, protective factors and research ethics. That this is more of like a lifestyle choice or perhaps a career choice. But I've surrounded myself with a lot of mental health care professionals, so I, I yeah. feel like I'm in a unique position to be well cared for while trying these altered altering substances because uh, my significant other, I asked her about, do I seem manic? And she said, no, I think you're just in a good mood and not used to it. Um, 
you know, it's it's good to have that kind of feedback, to have that kind of support. And I don't, it feels like a real privilege because not everyone's surrounded by, by kind mental health care professionals. Some people are with less kind ones or have had bad experiences. Yeah. So what do you say about those who, uh, who have no, uh, who have no history of being, you know, involved with mental health counselors or, or whatever like that? Like I haven't been to a doctor since I've been like 17 years old or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, to those, I would say there's a lot of bad doctors and mental health care professionals and um, a lot of bad systems. Like some people, they, they feel like there's an onus to try to find some relief in six sessions. Yeah, and so the whole premise of therapy is to only be six sessions long, and it sometimes it takes people ten sessions to even get to the the real issue. Um, so I, I would say to those people that it's worth finding a good therapist. Sometimes it takes a few tries. I've had, I think, ten or eleven therapists in my life, and I would say about a third of them were amazing, the the best therapists that I could imagine. A third of them were adequate, and a third of them, I would say, were psychonoxious, even harmful. Um, yeah. So if you if you run into a harmful person or a mediocre person, um, just remember it's still possible to find a great therapist. Yeah. So I, I think the same is true for medical doctors. So what are the best ways of finding one that's actually, you know, uh, not a quack or a or I guess a, a bad person. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, therapy should have some feeling of empowerment and some relief. Um, but therapy can also feel like a lot of hard work, doing hard things, really looking at yourself in ways that you're not used to. Um, so finding a good therapist, is it does it feel safe enough? with this person yeah. to look at yourself in those ways. If it doesn't feel safe enough, then maybe they're too judging or too critical or um, don't have enough unconditional positive regard or are just too blank. Some therapists are just really blank and, and hide so much of themselves that it's hard to connect with them. So um, be aware of your needs and continuously you talking about your needs makes sense. You think yep. there's any tendency to sort of force a conclusion like a, about a person? Like sort of yeah. giving them a, yeah. attributing to them a mental health problem that's probably not even really there. Yeah, I, I actually have a kind of a big section on that because I, I had a, when I was 18, I had a therapist who was hellbent on diagnosing with autism. Um, and, and she was kind of a psychonoxious therapist. She said a lot of things that caused more harm than good. Uh, yeah. Things like, are you sure you're not just saying that because you need more attention? Or um, and she seemed generally annoyed by me. And during that time, I was pretty suicidal. Um, but she was very hell-bent on diagnosing me with autism. And I speculated with my with the therapist I had after her, Mac, who I name in the book. Um, I think that she was so hell-bent on saying that I had autism because she wanted to blame me for my inability to connect with her and she wasn't able to see that some of the phrases she said were hurtful enough to make me not want to be open yeah 
So it's easier to say I have autism than try to create a circumstance that's opening for me. Yeah, when it comes to issues like, I would even say that suicide isn't necessarily always like a, you know, as big of a mental, uh, I guess, mental health problem as some people make it out to be. Because I, I think that in some cases, it has more to do with ex experiences or certain people that you're around that sort of can drive you into a depressive state. Because if you're if you're around people who are constantly, you know, calling you down and bullying you or something like that, I think it makes it much more plausible that you're going to be suicidal. Yeah. Yeah, and also quite often, like a lot of people have suicidal thoughts, but they might not actively be suicidal. It might be like a passing thing. Yeah. And um, therapists sometimes get so panicked by that um, that they'll stomp out the conversation before it can even happen. I, I think in, like, I don't remember which classes it was, but it might have been like, it might have even been like a, a class on politics, but they would they would refer to a master status of somebody, you know, like th this person is this and they're nothing else. So I think that can happen with a person who is suicidal or if they have some other mental illness where you see them as just that and you don't really look at, you know, a, how, in which way society or, you know, family or the people they hang around with might actually help create that person's problem. Yes. So it's like the onus is solely on the person undergoing the mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, like minor interventions like validation or unconditional positive regard or accurate empathy, those all help create a better therapeutic experience. Um, but the therapist that I had, who was so hyper fixated on autism, couldn't treat me because she couldn't stop looking at diagnosis. Yeah. She was just unwilling to treat me until she found some diagnostic term. So how, how did you get out of that situation then? Uh, I just, so I just um, called the office several days before I had the appointment and I just canceled and never went back. Yeah. Was this in high school or? No, this was in college. Okay. Um, and then I found another therapist named Mac, who was one of the best therapists I'd ever had. Maybe, maybe the greatest. Uh, he's very influential on my life. Yeah. Um, but he was also able to be unconventional. Uh, it is refreshing to hear about, you know, therapists in a positive light, because I think there's, I think there's this idea that, you know, th therapy is just a waste of time and money. That seems to be a lot of the messaging that I get about it. Yeah. I and mean, I can see that if like, like in more managed care sessions where people aren't really getting treatment. Um, I have an excerpt I could read about Mac. Uh, Mac was sure. my first great therapist. I had him when I was 20 years old and felt like I could talk about suicide. Every therapist before him seemed profoundly annoyed by my suicidal ideation. I was asked questions such as, are you sure you're not just saying that for attention? And am I going to have to worry about you? 
The accusatory tone within those questions always closed me off, further cementing in my mind that others are more interested in checking boxes than understanding me. Mac once said to me, in these situations, therapists like to contract for safety. We can do that now, but what I think you really need is to be able to talk about this. Say what's on your mind and we can go back to contacting for safety a little later. I told Mac I was too depressed to consider suicide. We both laughed. I told Mac everything about my previous treatments. Mac said, I think too many people showed you they weren't trustworthy and you started to wonder, maybe no one is trustworthy. So hmm. Mac had this real talent for giving like kind of basic summaries, but making them seem very profound um, in a way that was helpful to me. It gave me yeah. a sense of, it, it made me believe in treatment that there can be relief from this. Well, there's going to be a weird analogy, but in a way that's kind of reminding me of how I actually finally passed an algebra class because hmm. it, it, it was really to do with my attitude about it. I still don't like algebra, but at, at one point I finally realized, you know what, I've got to, I've got to finally just accept this and, you know, not see it as boring because I was really one of the main things that I had against it is just my attitude of it being boring and that, that it's completely against my, uh, you know, my nature to really care about math or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think we had the same algebra teacher, not at the same time, but um, if we, assuming it's the same person, I remember that teacher because I really struggled in algebra in ninth grade and no one figured out why, because I could do certain problems in my head and then other problems I seemed to be clueless about how to solve, yeah. even though they were the same basic formula. She um, had me write down my problems, the math problems, and she would follow along and she noticed that I tended to chunk steps together. Like I would yeah. just naturally add or or move numbers around in a way that made sense to me and then sometimes that would cause me to skip steps and sometimes that would work and i could figure out the problem mentally in my head and then other times i would just get way confused and not understand so she made me go through every step she stopped yeah. me from skipping steps and i think that kind of attention and finding what exactly my personal problem was with math helped me and it seemed like it helped you too well, for for me, like the problem continued or not into college or the university that I went to, and it took me a number of tries. But I think I think really what helped me uh, get through it was just realizing that I that I had to stop being emotionally reactive to it mm -hmm. because I just had negative emotions about math and I hated it. So I stopped being less emotional about the whole thing. Okay, yeah. And that kind of reminds me of, you know, like what we were talking about with with therapists. Yeah, so there has to be, therapists have to look at the person individually, but also almost like understand that, that person's, I don't know if I would say cultural references, but like the worldview where these thoughts and feelings are generating from, so the underlying schemas as to why they're there. Yeah. So, like Mac, Mac really mentioned he really harped on my how how distrusting I am of people, 
Yeah. Uh, he, he picked that up right away. I don't think the therapist I had before him realized how much I distrusted others. I think she just assumed that I trusted her enough to disclose. Yeah. Well, you, you know, I'm similar in that regard too. Yeah. <laughs> and then that has, that is partly due to my, or that's partly due to my own, ex my own childhood, of course, being around yeah. somebody who was an alcoholic and bipolar and who threatened to go on shooting sprees and stuff like that. That certainly had like an impact on my ability to trust others' judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you have that setup from childhood, you know, in early adulthood, your mind's prompted to always look for untrustworthy things because they're a source of danger and you want to be safe. So yeah, yeah. you'll naturally just pick up on people being not trustworthy. Oh yeah. Well, like, like when, uh, a lot of the times if people are like nice to me, I don't trust them. I would almost rather them be hostile. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, because they're more equipped to deal with their hostility than you are to deal with their subterfuge. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a weird problem, but it also yeah. makes sense to me. And, and, yeah. and the interesting thing is I don't see it totally as a bad thing. Like I haven't totally ended that sort of way of viewing things, but I've augmented it now that I understand that not everybody fits into that. It's just certain people. Yeah. So it's sort of like a sort of like an informed and cautious pessimism, I guess you might say. <laughs> yeah. And I I think I think that if there's there's one thing I want to, you know, get across about that is that you you can sort you can have certain pessimistic aspects to your personality without getting too overboard with it. Like you it does make sense at a certain point to distrust people, but at the same time, you have to take the good with the bad. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, um, finding out who's trustworthy to disclose this segment of my life with. I think that's a, that's an important question. Yeah. Cause, cause I can feel pretty trustworthy. I, I can trust my boss quite a bit. Um, but I don't know that I would necessarily trust her with everything. Yeah, and you know, another there's another thing about that too. I, once we're talking so much about the mind and behavior and stuff, I think what also helps me is that understanding that certain things are to do with mental illness or uh, however you want to phrase it, just, you know, the chemical reactions in a person's brain or something like that. It kind of, it kind of makes you understand that it's not always your fault that that certain people don't like you or that you don't like certain people. Like sometimes it can just be related to the unique conditions of a person's life during that time. And, you know, the, the things that are very difficult to actually take track of and manage. So certain experiences are going to be beyond your control. So, um, Boy, I don't know where I'm going with this at this point, but <laughs> I guess I guess that kind of you know settles it right there. Yeah, maybe being okay with negativity—that there's going to be some negativity. Yeah. In in the relationships that you choose to keep, and it's okay to accept some negativity that 
um, you know, you can draw boundaries and prevent it from encroaching too much on your life. Exactly. Something like that. Well, on that note, I think we are going to uh, wrap things up here because we've been chatting for a little while. And uh, so uh, hopefully people out there enjoyed at least portions of this. And is there anything you'd like to say to, to end it? Um. No, I guess I said said what I needed to say. Yeah. Well, have a nice life. <laughs> oh, thank you. You too. Yeah. All right. I'm going to wrap things up. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.